Okay, we're in the book of 1 Peter this morning. We've been working through 1 Peter this year. We're in chapter 3, we're about halfway through. Um, if you have a Bible, um, a kind of a paper one that looks like an actual book, then wow, congratulations. But uh, 1 Peter's at the back of that. Uh, if you just have your Bible on your phone, then I guess you can just search for it. But also, the words will appear on the screen behind me. So here we go. Let's read this together. So this is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Now it says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The title of the message today is How to Be Accused. I've got three points. Be resilient, know, speak, and love, and who can harm? Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are, that we can come here this morning and just sing sing songs of your wonder, of your power, of your might and majesty, and of your grace, your intimate love and care for each of us. That for those of us who are believers in you, we can now know this relationship with our Father in heaven. For those here that aren't believers in you, the offer is there for them this morning to come and receive Christ, to come and know you, to turn their back on their old life and to set their hearts on following you. We thank you so much for that, Jesus. We pray that you would strengthen us by your word today, that you would speak to us, that you would guide us, and you help us to know you better, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, with King's Day, if this is your, perhaps is this your first King's Day you've experienced, one of the really fun things about this time of year is, uh, I mean, every, every weekend our city is full of tourists, but particularly over the King's Day weekend, they have that kind of look of startled fear on their face, because they probably didn't know when they booked their plane tickets and their hotels that, that uh, they were going to be kind of attacked by this day of orangeness, basically. <laughs> and walk into a giant car boot sale and buy all sorts of stuff. But anyway, the, the thing about Kingsdale, obviously, is that everyone, everyone, well, most people wear orange or some kind of orange in their clothing. I remember last year, we'd been walking around one of the kind of festivals in our neighborhood, and we were just walking home. And this was about one o'clock in the afternoon. It wasn't kind of late in the evening. And this... This, it was a kind of typical 
King's Day moment that a front door opened and this guy kind of stumbled out dressed in orange with a big crazy hat on and holding a can of Heineken. And he just looked at me and said, Aronia! And then just kind of wandered off down the street. I was like, oh, okay, that's fairly typical King's Day experience. But uh, it, actually, it wasn't always the case that everybody wore orange and it was encouraged. Um, in the 1780s, so about 250 years ago, there was a, 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 um, a whole bunch of Dutch patriots tried to overthrow uh, the stadtholder, the king, and, and they would crack down on people who, who, who showed any kind of orange. So they had sort of laws that they would put on people that uh, if your carrots were too much out of the soil, you'd get in, in trouble. Um, they, they, a guy went to jail because he put saffron in his cakes and they came out orange. Seriously, true story. I don't know how long he was in jail for, hopefully not very long. But um, they, something that before that happened would have been very ordinary, and now we look back and think, well, it's obviously on King's Day or any sort of Dutch celebration, that's just what happens. People, people wear orange. But for that short period in history, it was suddenly cracked down upon and it was forbidden. And you think, well, how could that change suddenly take place? How could that suddenly, suddenly happen? How can they just face such persecution for such mundane things that would have been so normal? And yet for us, we live in, in, a, in a cultural situation where things that we believe as Christians would have 200 years ago would have been commonplace. The majority of people would have held the same belief system as us. Um, and as time has gone on, particularly over the last 50 years, some of the things that we believe have gone from being commonplace to being um, a bit abnormal, um, a, bit, a bit different perhaps, um, kind of a bit, a bit old-fashioned. That's the journey that the, the church has been on particularly here in Holland. I think 50 years ago, 80% of the Dutch population were, were members of a church, uh, whereas now on any Sunday in Amsterdam, maybe only one or 2% of people would, would go to church. There's been this huge, steep decline in Christian belief. And at the same time, what we believe um, is, is not just old-fashioned anymore, but even considered perhaps weird sometimes even dangerous, some of the things we believed are, are not really even accepted by the world around us. There's lots of division in society. There was an article a, a few weeks ago in the local paper which said, uh, God is Turuch, God is back uh, in Amsterdam. And he was talking about how many migrants, many people from overseas, I guess like some of us, have moved into the city and brought their beliefs with them, both uh, from a Christian background or a Muslim background. And the article was saying we need to rediscover what it is to be a pluralistic culture, as in pluralistic means you accept lots of different things, lots of different beliefs. But in reality, what happens is it's, it's okay for us to be Christians as long as our faith, our beliefs are, are private, as, as long as they only affect what happens in here and in our, in our homes. As soon as what we believe begins to break out into the world around us, people in our secular society begin to get, begin to get nervous. 
They don't want Christianity to affect anything else. They don't want it to have any kind of voice in the public sphere. Religion is fine as long as it's a, a quiet thing, a private thing, a thing that's hidden away. And Christianity can be tolerated if we talk about things like care and compassion. Everybody can sign up to those sort of things. But when we talk about things like perhaps the sanctity of life or the authority of God, then people get nervous. They don't want to hear us talk about those things. Those things are, are dangerous. Those things aren't acceptable to the society we live in. And that calls us to be to learn what it is to be resilient. Because Peter's writing this letter, you may remember, to, to the exiles, to people that had been in Jerusalem, that many of them would have been in the very first church you read about that was started in Acts chapter two. Then persecution came in Jerusalem and they were spread all across the Middle East and the Mediterranean. And he's writing this letter to all these people that have been spread out to different places who are believers in Jesus but suddenly found themselves in contexts where nobody else believes in Jesus. They're very similar to us. We are in many respects exiles here in this city, sent here by God, but with different beliefs from the world around us. And he writes in this passage about some of the, the suffering, the, the accusation that may come because of what we believe some of the things that may come to us that we might have to make a defense for. And our suffering might not look like, you know, in some parts of the world, to believe in Jesus may mean that you end up in prison, may mean you end up being separated from your family, may end up leading even to your death. Even today, in some parts of the world, that's still true. Now, that's not true here in Amsterdam, but there's other things that we may suffer for what we, for what we believe. So it might be a sense of social shame or mockery. Maybe some of you experience this, that people think what you believe is just so weird and old-fashioned that they, you just kind of become a bit of a an object of fun. You're just one of those Bible bashers that people like to laugh at and poke fun at. You might think it's a minor thing, but those taunts, those accusations can kind of get under your, your skin when you're, when you're mocked for what you believe. When people just see you as kind of antiquated or a bit silly or a bit outdated or just plain weird. That can, be, that can be uncomfortable. It might even be that what happens is more like social dislocation. By that I mean even the breakdown of friendships. Again, in some parts of the world, that's one of the biggest barriers to Christianity is that for someone to believe in Jesus means they might lose their, their relationships, that their parents, their brothers and sisters may disown them and say, well, if you reject that belief system and take on this one, then we, you can't be part of us anymore. You have to leave now. We won't speak to you again. That happens to many people. But that's not, nowadays that's not just a, an issue for people in, in other parts of the world. Increasingly that's an issue for some of us here. 
that for us to hold on to what we believe is, will mean that perhaps some of your friends won't want to be your friends anymore. Because some of what we believe is now unacceptable in culture. So you might find that people think, well, I don't want to, I don't have friends with somebody who believes that. They might not say it out loud, but suddenly you'll notice the, maybe a distance in relationships. People don't want to hang out with you so much. That can be, that can be difficult sometimes. I'm not saying it's going to happen to all of us. I'm not saying it's going to happen for all of your friends, but it may happen for some of you at some points when you make a, a stand for what you believe and you suddenly find that it's not very popular. It may be even that in the place that you, you work, there, there are consequences that, that come. So uh, someone here was, was telling me a story recently of how their, their wife here in Amsterdam had gone on a course about how to get a job here in the city uh, with a group of them and they went through and reviewed their, their CV, their kind of uh, description of what they'd done through their life and career. And they were reviewing her CV and it came to a point where she mentioned in her CV that she spent a year studying about Christianity, a year at a, a Bible school. And the person running the class said, oh, you, you wanna take that bit out. You don't, you don't wanna mention on your CV that you're a Christian. You don't want religion to have any focus here. That's, that's a disadvantage, which is crazy. Even 10, 20 years ago, that would have been, employers would have seen that as an advantage. Wow, this person's a Christian. Man, they're gonna be faithful in their job. They're gonna serve, they're gonna love people. Whereas now people, people don't wanna don't see that anymore. It's a, it's a negative thing. We might even find that, that for us in the church, that even sometimes our increasingly in societies like this, even freedom of speech is beginning to be curtailed because we live in a society that claims to be tolerant, but is really only tolerant about the things that it finds acceptable under its new code of morality. So it's very intolerant actually to, to a lot of things. And we'll find that when we begin to speak out about issues, that they may come a time when that's just not allowed anymore to have an opinion about certain things because it's just not tolerated. It's just not acceptable. And in moments like that, we have a choice to make. We can say, will we choose to relevance, retreat, or resilience? I've talked about this before, but you can... You can take the Christian faith and maybe everything I've said so far sounds a bit depressing. Sorry about that. Or maybe it just feels like I'm exaggerating. I'm kind of painting a bit of a negative picture just to scare you all. I'm not trying to do that. But all of you will be aware of a temptation to kind of water things down. Maybe even to, not to admit that you believe in Jesus at all but there's a temptation for you individually, definitely for us as a church, to just to try and be just relevant to the society around us. And say, well, if we're gonna really reach people in this city, then those bits, we've just gotta pretend that they're not there. We'll just get rid of those bits of the Bible. We won't talk about those bits. We'll reinterpret those to make sense. We'll just ignore those bits. And in such a desperation, 
to love our city, we just water things down. And we, we actually, we lose any sense of distinctiveness. We don't really have anything to offer to the world around us because we just become the same. We're just kind of a club that meets together, but we're actually no different. Or the other option is that you, you just retreat. We just run for the hills. Not there are any hills in the Netherlands, but we, we run, you know. We run for the flatlands. <laughs> we go away and we hide and we say, let's just have a nice Christian huddle and we'll, we can just believe what we believe um, and we'll just, we'll just keep out the, the rest of the world. We'll just be, just be this nice kind of Christian subculture. We'll just ignore, block out everything else. But the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. The Bible tells us to love the world around us. We meet here in this building, not just because it's a nice building, but because we want to be right in the heart of this city. We don't want to be out in the suburbs somewhere or out in a little village. Not that there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but God's called us to be here, to reach this city. God's called you to be sent here, to be an exile here, to, to know what it is to love those around you, but first of all, to love Jesus. And that means we need to be resilient, to hold on to what we believe. And wonderfully, this was, this was Peter's story, Peter who writes this letter, because you may know of the story of what happened with Peter in the, the, the account of Jesus' crucifixion. One moment, Jesus is taken to, the, to a gathering place with some of the high priests, some of the people of power in the city of Jerusalem, and Peter follows him there. And they're, they're accusing Jesus of all sorts of things. And some of the people begin to ask Peter. They say to him, what, did, what, what, didn't you used to hang around with this guy? Weren't you one of his followers? And he denies it. Three times he denies it. You can see there's actually a, a painting in the, the Rijksmuseum where it doesn't really come out very well there. But uh, you see Peter. I don't know which one Peter is actually. Perhaps someone with a big beard, although I think he's probably a lot younger than that. But anyway, they're, they're accusing Peter... And in the, you can't quite see it here, but in the background there, is Jesus is looking back at him. And Rembrandt catches this, this verse from Luke, Luke 22, where it says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter, in that moment, he chose just to be, just to be relevant. He just thought, I'm just gonna pretend that I didn't know that guy. Just pretend that I didn't follow him. Because he was seeing what was happening to Jesus and thought, I don't want that to, to happen to me too. But wonderfully, Peter actually, he changes and he grows. And we read in Acts chapter 5, a similar sort of situation. Peter, some of the believers are dragged before those in authority in Jerusalem. are told they need to stop what they're doing. What they're doing. They need to stop following Jesus. They need to get rid of this ridiculous belief system they've, they've, they're following. And Peter says this. Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. In that moment, he chose to be resilient. He said, no matter what the consequences, and Peter and the believers faced some horrible consequences, they said, we're going to obey God rather than anybody else. They chose to be resilient. 
So how do we do that? How do, how do we respond like Peter version two from Acts five rather than Peter version one from Luke 22? How do we do that? Well, we need to know what it is to know, to speak and to love. First of all, it says that they, it tells us to have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Because you see, you, you might have noticed this in your life, but fear will, will hold back obedience. It's like a harness that kind of holds you back. And fear kind of holds back blessing as well because you're not walking in God's ways. You're not following him. Fear is like a restraint that just holds you back from what you're called to do. Yet the Bible's really clear. It says, have no fear, nor be troubled. And that, that can sound, in this sort of context, I mean, that can sound very easy. Um, it can sound like a nice slogan that we could put on a T-shirt. No fear. Ugh. Actually, it's quite hard. It's hard not to fear. I'm sure you all know that. It's a very common emotion that we feel in our hearts, that temptation to fear, to doubt, to worry. So how do we do that? Well, he goes on to say, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, because at the very core of your being, you need to determine and decide whether you're going to fear man or fear God. I don't mean to be scared of God and hiding away, but whether you're going to live your life always worried about what's going to happen, what people are going to say about you, or whether you're going to say, man, in my heart, I'm going to honor Christ. I'm going to make a decision to follow him. Sometimes we need to make that decision every day. <laughs> I'm going to honor Christ today. I'm going to follow him today. I'm not going to give in to fear. And to do that, that's, that's, that's kind of spiritual backbone. That's building spiritual muscle. Because if you learn how to keep deciding day after day, I'm going to know Christ. I'm going to know him. I'm going to follow him. It strengthens you that when the accusations do come, you're able to stand firm. You're able to make a defense. That's what it goes on to encourage us to do. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Because there's an assumption that if we live long time to that on a Christ, that people will notice. And they will from time to time. They'll think, well, why did you make that decision? Why did you respond in that way? Our life will shine out to people. There'll be something of Christ in us that will radiate out and people will want to know. They're going to ask us, tell us about this hope. And it might come with a sense of accusation, trying to prove us wrong. It might be that they're genuinely interested. But it's important that we make sure that we always offer a reason and not, not retaliation. Because <laughs> sometimes... I've made this mistake. We get into a, a debate or a conversation about what we believe, and my main goal is I just want to win. <laughs> I just want to win. I just want to prove them wrong. 
And sometimes that can come from a good place. We think, oh, I just want to defend Jesus, therefore I'm just going to fight back. But it's, reasoning with people isn't about winning. It's not about retaliation if you've been accused you're having to suffer for what you believe it's not about just fighting back and lashing out it's actually much more about your heart it's an appeal to the heart because again it goes on to say yet do it with gentleness and respect and this isn't just about being very polite i'm english so in england you're trained how to be polite it's just part of the makeup we just say sorry for, for everything all of the time, even if it's not our fault. It's just what we do. We apologize. We don't know why. We just do it. So just get used to it. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but this verse isn't just about being polite. It's actually it's a very important verse because it's saying that you need to appeal to people's heart. Appeal to people's heart. Because actually the thing is, we, we, we think that we live a certain way and we make certain choices because of what we think. That, that's, that's how society trains us to, to, to understand the world, understand how we function. Is It's all about what's going on up here, that we're rational beings that will decide what we want to do and then follow a particular course of action. Actually, we're not like that at all, are we? Actually, most of us follow, in fact, all of us follow what goes on in here. We follow our heart, our emotions. You might think, oh, I'm not an emotional person, I'm a, a rational person. But that's really not true. I'm reading a fascinating book at the moment which describes it as like um, our, how we rationalize things, how we decide things, is like the rider on top of an elephant, okay? A rider on a horse gets to control most of the time where the horse goes. There's always a bit of wildness. You always don't quite, quite know what's going to happen, but most of the time you're pretty much in control. Now, I've never ridden a horse or an elephant, as a matter of fact, but if you ride an elephant, from what I'm told, it's very different. You, basically, you go where the elephant wants to go. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what's going to happen. And you can try and guide it a little bit and point it in the right direction, but the elephant is very much in control. And that's how we are. If you see the rider as our kind of rational thinking brains and the elephant as what's going on in our emotions, our heart, most of the time we just, uh, we just follow where our heart is going and then we rationalize it. We, we, we argue it to try and convince ourselves that we've made that decision. And most of the people around you, they believe what they believe about God, not because they've done loads of research, not because they've studied it, not because they're able to disprove the resurrection or anything like that but for something in here just they'd much rather just live for themselves they'd much rather just do what makes them happy it's, it's governed by their heart so if you try and convince them that all their reasons are wrong you're fighting the wrong battle it's not that you shouldn't do those, do those things but what's much more important is appealing to people's heart is showing them that you love them you want to listen to them, that you want to hear what they have to say, but you appeal to what's going on inside. And we do that finally with, by having a good conscience. 
finishes up here in this section of saying, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. One of the huge accusations about Christianity is just that we're all hypocrites. And the world around us needs to see an authentic faith. It's not just about words. It's not just about us retaliating and lashing out, but that we really believe this, that we really follow this, that we really do love people. And when that happens, that's so powerful. That's what really will change people. Not that you just argue with them, but they see that what you say is backed up by how you live. That convinces people. It's authentic. Now, maybe this just all sounds a bit kind of theoretical. You know, this whole idea of having to make a defense and reasoning and accusation coming. Uh, maybe you have suffered some kind of accusation here, but maybe this is, you think, well, it's not really happened to me. But probably what's more true for most of us is that we're, we're afraid to speak up. You know, we, we see how people live around us. Sometimes we see, I've been involved in conversations where people have been mocking Christianity or mocking Jesus and they've not known I'm a Christian. And you, it's difficult to know what to do in those scenarios. I'm sure some of you have faced situations like that. Maybe you've been accused of something other than what you believe. Maybe you've been mocked for something else. You know, how you look or how you speak. Something about your character that people perceive as a flaw that they've attacked you of or accused you of. We all suffer accusations in different ways. Maybe the, the accusations that you faced are actually more internal. The problem is not other people accusing you. It's the accusations that you put against yourself. You're constantly undermining yourself. Constantly telling yourself how you're not good enough. A lot of times, that's the enemy. And he will, that's how the Bible describes Satan. That's one of the names it gives him as the accuser. The accuser of the brothers. And you may know those darts of accusation that come at you. Sometimes even tell us of things that we've done that we've been forgiven for but the enemy likes to attack us all the same. Remind us of our failings. Remind us of our weaknesses. Throw accusations and taunts at us to mock us, even to ridicule us. And we can carry those things like a, like a weight on our shoulders. They can rob us of our joy and our peace. We can feel all the time just accusation coming again and again and again. Every time we feel like we've failed, We've not hit the mark. We've let ourselves down. We've let God down. We can feel those accusations come so much. And we can suffer from that. Finishes off by saying, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And we're going to talk about 
suffering a little bit more in a few weeks' time. How suffering actually isn't necessarily a bad thing, but often helps release us from the grip that the world has on us and release us to follow God. But when it comes to accusation, it's important that we, we know that the one we come to, that he was accused, says in Luke 23, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and they mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. It says also in Luke 22, this is just after the account of Peter denying Jesus when they take Jesus away. It says, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So he was accused, he was mocked, he was rejected even. He said this about himself, he said, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. You know, Jesus knew what it was for the whole of society to turn against him, for everyone around him to reject him for who he was. And you as a Christian will sometimes find that. You, you feel like the whole climate of this world, that everything is just against you. Everything is rejected, what you believe and how you live. And that's actually a really wonderful thing because we get to walk in Jesus' footsteps. We get to follow his pattern of life. And it's just this wonderful thing that we come to one who is accused and mocked and rejected. And yet we know that for, for every time that we have been a, a hypocrite, every time that we've feared the consequences of what we believe, every time maybe you've even had those moments like Peter did where you've denied Christ and pretended not to be a believer. All those times when we've not honored Jesus in our hearts where we've not lived up to the mark, where we've avoided suffering and accusation, we know that, that he didn't do that, that he stood firm, that he held fast. And not just as an example for us of how to live, but to save us for when we couldn't live like that. He came as our savior to rescue us. He was despised and rejected and mocked for us. And now we can say, well, who can, who can harm us? That's how this passage starts. Who is there to harm you? Which is weird, because he then goes on to describe all the ways that people are harmed. But ultimately, the question still remains, who is there to harm you? It says in Psalm 56, it says, in, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? It says in Romans 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? When all these accusations come, whether they're from the world around us, friends or family, whether from yourself, 
Maybe you feel you're being accused in all sorts of different ways. The reality is that none of those things can harm you because ultimately, finally, Jesus has won a great victory for you through his death and resurrection. He's saved you into this beautiful, eternal relationship with him. He suffered all this abuse for us so that we can know him. And we can all say that our soul is well, that a savior has come for us. Let's, let's finish. Why don't you stand to your feet? Let me pray and then we're going to sing together. God, we thank you that each of us can declare if God is for us, who can be against us? And we know so many ways where we feel like people are against us. We feel sometimes like we're even against ourselves, constantly arguing with ourselves. We can, we can know the attacks and accusations of the enemy, and yet we can still return to this verse. We can still say, as Peter did, who is there to harm me? If God is for me, who can be against me? Because we know ultimately the main problem of our lives has been solved. That a saviour has come to rescue us. And we can now delight and take great joy that no matter what people say, no matter what we say about ourselves, that there's this wonderful reality, this solid hope that we stand on of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's won for us. Thank you, Jesus.